So, we want to talk about patent infringement or what happens if you have a patent and someone infringes. Right. Um, so I have a story um, and you have a story um, and I'll, I'll tell my story just to kind of like lay out what, what my, my, my entry-level understanding of it is so far and then you can, you can share your story to, to really explain the concept. But um, so my uh, girlfriend's mom and, um, and my girlfriend's brother, her son. Okay, you said it enough. You um, have a girlfriend. <laughs> brag, just brag away, Ray. You've got a girlfriend. Okay. I do, Let's yeah. get that out there. Yeah, yeah by, by so Ray has a girlfriend. Some miracle. Um, so <laughs> By the way, it's funny that people are watching us. I know. Outside the office. Oh, yeah, I know. We, uh, we have this big glass Gigantic window. fan and base of there's an adult, three two people. teenagers, and a child. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so anyway, so you got a girlfriend, you've emphasized... <laughs> and now they're laughing and giving you You've emphasized to right, the so, world that you have yeah, a girlfriend. So, right, so okay. so my girlfriend's mom and, and her son, my girlfriend's brother, uh, they have an app that they're developing, and um, they were, she, she thinks that I... They think that I know a lot about IP because of my job, but um, I, I, they're deceived. Um, and, but I was trying to explain to them, you know, like the, the basics of the different kinds of IP, primarily patents, because it sounds like that's... If they had one opportunity, that would be it. Um, and what I was trying to explain was that really the power of the patent comes in um, your ability. Your it, it, it's not that it's not that it gives you the right to make, use, or sell the patented idea in the marketplace. It it gives you the ability to prevent other people from making, using, and selling that patented technology in the marketplace. And, and that, that fact alone demonstrates that you do know something about IP. Patents. But compared to so a your girlfriend, lawyer, no. your girlfriend is correct to go to you because okay. you do know something. Well, a little bit. Hardly little anyone bit. knows that like weird little fact. Yeah, because almost everyone thinks if you have a patent, it gives you the right to make, use, and sell your product in the marketplace. Right, when but it does. You can have a patent and still be prevented from making, using, and selling your patents and technology in the marketplace because someone else has a broader patent. Right. That's interesting. So really what you can do is, like you said, you could prevent others. So go to your girlfriend's brother's invention. He's thinking about getting a patent. Right. Yeah. So, so, I mean, they, they didn't know, they don't, they're not sure. And I'm not sure yet. I told them they should, they should really talk to a patent or to an IP attorney to get a, a clear sense of what to do. But the, the main message that I was trying to send home is one, patents are pretty expensive. For the average person, oh, for yeah. a big company, not so much. But Except, the, no, even for the big company, because imagine an average person might have one invention, and that costs a lot of money for them, like eight, ten thousand U.S. dollars if it's a U.S. patent, right? right? But if you're a big company, you have hundreds of times as many patentable invention ideas. Sure. So you're, it's always comes down to the money, right? Right. Whether you're big or small, yeah. You always have less money than patentable ideas, right? right. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, that's true. Sure, and then there's every country too. And, oh yeah, all over and, the world. Because that's eight to ten thousand country. And you're all you're getting hit everywhere you go with. But Mormon. then also, it's not just once you have the patent. That's only the beginning, because inevitably, if you're successful, people are going to try and copy you, and you're going to have to defend those patented ideas in the marketplace. Right. Or yeah, then, enforce your patent. Or enforce your patent. Yeah. That's right. right. Yeah. Right. The proper terminology. No, but else so, could be defend your patent like but, this too. But so enforce your enforce your patent in the marketplace, and that is infringement, right? Right. And so now it only really matters if you're successful, because because no, we've said before in, in earlier podcasts 
no one, if you're not successful, who cares? No one cares. No, hardly anyone wants to copy a failing product. Right, exactly. Right. But so, so patent to your heart's content on your failing products. And yeah, sure. No one will copy you. Yeah, if the if the legal grand right. patent. Um, <laughs> but so, just because they're so disgusted that your product is so just, bad, what it's is this? new, Trash. it's useful, and it's unobvious, but it's just so just such a horrible. Product. Right, right, right. Who needs a chair with pins sticking out of the cushion? Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, it could be a good torture device, but it's not going to sell. So okay. So so basically, the concept that I was trying to drive home was that. You're gonna, the, the value comes in, in essentially in being able to stop other people from making your patented idea. And yeah. that all is complicated and costs money and involves lawyers and litigation. And you have a story about, about patent infringement that you know basically covers, answers the question, what do I do if someone's infringing my patent? Yeah, because there, again, there, so there's this great chasm between theory and reality with respect to patents, right? In theory, if you have a patent in a country, and let's just use the U.S., I mean, it could be every, every country has a patent system, but in the U.S., and it's similar everywhere you go, if you have a patent, in theory, you can prevent others, anybody, everybody, from making, using, and selling or offering for sale your patented technology. So they can't copy your products if they're containing your patented technology. But that's a theory. Because in reality, patents are so expensive to enforce that many people, even if they have a valid patent, can't afford to enforce their patent in the marketplace. Because it is time-consuming, expensive, and in so many ways ugly trying to enforce your patent in the court system, right? Everything costs. There's expenditures everywhere. Right. So I was going to just go through a quick story of what one of our clients, I won't talk about our client in particular. In fact, I'll make up the product, I'll make up the countries, but I'll just use the scenario of what we just came up with and had to deal with recently with one of our clients. Okay. Want to do that? Yes. Okay. So, so we're going to, I'll just make up, instead of the actual patented product, we're going to call it a boat engine, okay? Right. And instead of the exact, the actual country that, was, that owns this boat engine and was selling in the U.S., let's call it France. Okay. So France, a company in France, XYZ, has a patent on a boat engine in the U.S. Because remember, every country has their own patent system. So if you want to get a patent in France and you're a French company, great, but you can't enforce it in the U.S. because right. the U.S. only lets you enforce U.S. patents, right? Right? Right, yeah. Okay, so they have a French patent, but it's just not relevant with respect to what's happening in the U.S. So they have right. a U.S. patent as well. So they have a distributor. It's already, so com it's already like a web. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. how many can countries? Imagine the cost. Yeah, yeah, there's a whole ton of countries. Yeah. Right. A lot. Yeah. A lot of countries. So France has a patent in the the French, French company, company has a patent in the U.S. Right. And they have a pat they patented this boat engine technology in a few other countries, but also the U.S. Okay. So they have a distributor in the U.S. that is applying those boat engines to boats and selling them in the U.S. Hmm. So there's a company in in China that is producing an infringing boat engine. And they have a distributor in the U.S. that's attaching them to boats and selling them in the U.S., right? Mm -hmm. So what do you do? You now have an infringing product in the marketplace in the U.S. And the big problem is they haven't had to invest in R&D to come up with this product, right? right. So I've had to, my XYZ company has had to invest millions in coming up with just the right stuff 
for this engine so that it would be, you know, longer lasting, more durable, all the right stuff that you want in an engine. And by the way, I know very little about boat engines, but it's a really good boat engine. So in order to do that, you have to spend a fortune in development. Yeah. Now, if another company comes along and they copy you, they simply buy your boat engine and they look at it and they take it apart and they do molds and they build the exact same engine that you have, they haven't had to spend all the money figuring it out. Right. They're just copying it. So they immediately have an advantage in the marketplace. Let's just say it costs XYZ company 10 million US dollars to research and develop and engineer their boat engine. Right. ABC company in China has spent zero on that part, right? They're already $10 million ahead in the marketplace without having to do anything. That's how they spend on marketing, marketing, on sales, sales on distributors, distributors, getting their product, getting their copied product, their infringed product out there in the marketplace. So the question is, what do you do? So it really comes down to how important it is to you, right? If you believe that this copied product is going to harm your business, you need to take action. Now, one of the problems with patent infringement litigation is, again, it's really expensive. I mean, the average patent litigation in the United States costs between two and four million U.S. dollars all in. Right. And it takes around three or four years to get to the end. OK. Now, patents only valid for 15 to 20 years. Right? Yeah, 20 years from the date of file. 20 years right. from the date of so, file. So think of this. Now, you are being infringed in the marketplace. Now, because the other company, ABC company in China, and their distributor in the U.S. has not had to spend the $10 million in engineering and design, they can undercut you on price. So while you're charging, let's say, $20,000 U.S. for your product, they can charge $10,000 U.S. for your product. And since they've taken your product apart and copied it exactly, it's the same, same product, product, right? So who, who would you rather buy from? I mean, I would rather buy from a company that's selling me the exact same engine for $10,000 than $20,000, right? So what's that going to do to XYZ company, the French company with the U.S. distributor? What's it going to do to their market, to their market share? They could actually be knocked out of the marketplace because it's three or four years before the case is over and you're going to spend a fortune trying to defend yourself. And oh, by the way, at the end of it all, after spending three or four years competing against an infringing product in the marketplace that's coming in at half the price of your product, at the end of it all, if you're victorious at trial, you only get to go back to competing in the marketplace without them. You know, it's not like you get a big, you know, you you get a situation where, I mean, you might get a financial award, absolutely, because in district court, you can get a financial award. Right. But the financial award might not be enough. Because you've already lost years in the marketplace. You might not even have a business at that point. Right. You might be out of business. And you know what they call that? They call that irreparable harm. Hmm. In other words, there's no monetary award that can be provided to you that can fix the fact that you've been basically knocked out of business during yeah. that time. You don't yeah. even have a business anymore, right? Yeah. So there is, So what, what do you do? Well, you have to bring a patent infringement action in a federal court in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And you have to you know, get jurisdiction for that and all that stuff. But, but the big thing is you have to get them to stop right away. you got to get them to stop right. copying your product before they put you out of business. And there's a way to do that. And that is with a motion called a preliminary injunction motion. A preliminary injunction, injunction motion. motion. Yeah, as opposed to a permanent injunction. So there's a thing called a permanent injunction, which means you are permanently banned 
from making, using, or selling this infringing product in the marketplace. I see. So preliminary is before a decision is officially made. Well, before you... a final adjudication has been concluded, right? Before the case is over in three or four years. Okay. So you're saying basically you want to go to the court and say, look, if you make us wait until this case is over, there might not even be a company anymore. We will be knocked out of business. We will be irreparably harmed. And the, so as a result, what we'd like you to do is prevent the defendant, the alleged infringer, from putting their products into the marketplace mm -hmm. today, right? Not in three to four years, although we want you to do that too. Right. But today we need you to stop. How, how would they even, in, how, who enforces that? I mean, do the police show up? Like what, is there a federal enforcement agency that yeah, yeah, there's an shows up with yeah. guns and handcuffs? And okay, now I've never been a part of that search warrant execution where you're going into the boat engine place. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not exactly sure how that happens, but it happens. Well, yeah, because yeah, it exists. Yeah, so it happens. But there's ways you can, you can block from the border. You can go to the uh, customs sure. and you can prevent the stuff from coming in. You can have the marshals seize products and stuff like that. Right. But before that even happens, you need to get that injunction, right? Right. So the question is, how do you do that? Because you're not giving the defendant their day in court. Right. Because there's two sides to every litigation. Sure. There's right. the plaintiff and there's the defendant. Right. So the plaintiff is saying to the court, if you don't stop them today, we will be irreparably harmed. It doesn't matter how much money they pay us at the end, even if they can. They might go out of business, too. We, we will be we, we can't be fixed. The damage will be too permanent for us. Right. The other side of it is the defendant's going to say, well, wait a second. We haven't even been convicted of anything. I mean, it's right. not a criminal case. It's a they civil might case. Say, but oh, we designed this 20 years ago. We just didn't start using it. Until yeah, now. exactly. We are not guilty, right? I mean, we, we, right. the, the action will say. hold in our favor at the end of it all. So how can you possibly take away our opportunity to be heard, right? Right. So the court has this preliminary injunction process, which essentially enables you to do that. And what they essentially want you to do as a plaintiff is demonstrate a few things, but two things in particular. Mm. So it's kind of like a mini trial that you're going to have. You're going to say, we're not going to have the whole trial because that's down the road a ways, right? After all kinds of, you know, expensive litigation discovery and stuff. And then we'll have a trial and maybe we'll have a jury there. But we're going to do something preliminary to that. In a very short period of time, maybe the next 30 days, we're going to have a hearing. And the plaintiff is going to be required to prove Number one, that they have a, a good case for infringement, right? The right. likelihood of success on the merits, right? right. There is, there's a good chance that, there's, that they're being infringed by this product. Pretty clear evidence that this is infringement. infringement. Yeah, they're copying infringement. the idea. Right. But, yeah, well, not the idea. But Remember, the, you can't patent ideas. The, their claim, the, the, the elements process. of the claims in my patent right. are contained in that product, right. Right? right? And I have to prove there's a high likelihood of that being the case. But also... I have to prove that I will be irreparably, irreparably harmed. Because if I'm not going to be irreparably harmed, if it can be fixed with money damages, why would they ever take away the defendant's right to defend themselves in the full-fledged trial? Right. They wouldn't do that. So you got to be able to say, this is pretty much going to put us out of business. It's going to cause irreparable harm, yes. Right. Now, it might, it might not put us out of business, but that's a really good case if you can make that. But that, some, something that... That but you, imagine you know, that, though. A big money settlement wouldn't fix. Yeah, it wouldn't fix it. Because imagine trying to compete with the same product at, half the pr at, at twice the price. I have the same product as you, 
But I'm that I invented. No, no, no. I invented it. No, I have the right. same product as you. I'm the inventor. No, you're the thief. I'm the inventor, right? I'm the good guy. You're the bad guy. Okay. So I have the product. I have to charge 20 grand in the marketplace because I spent $10 million in research and development and engineering that you didn't have to spend. Right. Since you didn't have to spend it, you can charge $10,000 for the product. And it's the same product because you copied me. Right. So everyone's going to buy from you and no one's going to buy from me eventually. And I'm going to go out there and say, well, we're better. And you're going to say, no, it's the same thing. Right. I'm going to say, well, I got a better brand. Well, who cares about the brand? It's the right. same product. Yeah. And ultimately, people are going to buy from you and not me, and I'm going to go out of business. And that's going to be my case to the court, is that I can't possibly compete with this infringing product, and I will be irreparably harmed. But then the court's going to say, well, wait a second. Do you have any good proof that they're actually infringing? I mean, how do we know? So I have to go ahead and prove my case for infringement. And what I'll have to do for that is show a claim chart that shows my claim of my patent that you're alleged to be infringing mm -hmm. and show all the elements of my claim and then go to your product and compare it with your product and show all the elements of my claim that I can point to in your product, right? Right. Now, there's two basic ways that you prove infringement. One is literal infringement. And literal infringement means that each element of my claim is contained in your product, okay? Okay. There's another thing called the doctrine of equivalence. So it's like every every claim. Element. I can point to every claim element. And I can point in your product and I can see Every it. single one of them. Everyone, yeah. You have to have everyone. Okay. You have that's, to have that no matter that's what. That's literal infringement. Well, that's literal infringement. And there's another thing called uh, infringement under the doctrine of equivalence, which means that it might not be exactly the same, but it's it su does substantially the same thing in substantially the same way to achieve substantially the same result. Okay? Okay. So... It's not exactly the element to element comparison isn't exact, but each element does substantially the same thing as the element I'm pointing to in substantially the same way right. to achieve substantially the same result. So right? like if one of your claim elements is um, this piece of metal is connected to this piece of metal by a screw, but they're the, the infringer that you're, you're saying they're the infringer, you're claiming that they are connecting the, the, this piece of metal and this piece of metal with glue. So it's not exactly the same, but yeah. it's substantially the same. Yeah, that's kind of the concept, right? It's not, I mean, if you said, so I have two pieces of wood, I want to compare them. I want to, one's a screw, right? One's a nail. So forgive me all patent lawyers out there if I'm not being exact on this, but it's a good concept. I like your example. Okay. And that is it helps to explain it in general. Is a nail substantially the same thing as a screw? And is it affixing the boards in substantially the same way to achieve substantially the same result? Yes. Is a nail exactly a screw? No. Right. So you could say that you have literal infringement in one case, doctrine of equivalence in the other. But in a preliminary injunction motion, while I don't know if it's required under the law, it's pretty common to, to say that, or to think, or to see that if you can't show your case under literal infringement, you're probably not going to get your preliminary injunction motion because the doctrine of equivalence is a little fuzzier, right? Right. It, it requires a little more interpretation. Is this substantially the same as this? And does it do it in substantially the same way as this to achieve substantially the same result as this? It's subject to more interpretation than saying there are two nails. I see two nails there. Right. That's identical, right? So in order to get this preliminary injunction motion, you need to prove that you have a good case on the merits and prove that you are likely 
that you'll be you know, irreparably harmed by this. And then the court can grant an injunction, which then stops the, the defendant, the alleged to be infringing party, right. from making, using, and selling their infringing product in the marketplace. And in this case, it's boat engines that now they can't sell a $10,000 boat engine, which means all those customers that wanted to buy that $10,000 boat engine, if they want it, they've got to come to me for my $20,000 boat engine right. until the end of trial. Now, if it's found to be that the plaintiff did not do anything wrong, um, they can then start selling in the marketplace, but then they will have lost, right? They will have lost an opportunity to produce in the marketplace. So a lot of times plaintiffs are required to put up a bond, which is essentially guaranteeing that they will be compensated hmm. for their loss from not being able to be in the marketplace. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, so, so all is that, of that... What is, how do they decide, like, the bond? The value, value. Probably the value. You know, the value of what it is that they're going to lose by not being able to compete in the marketplace. So bigger opportunities have bigger bonds. Littler opportunities have wow. littler bonds. That's really interesting. Yeah, so that now is a preliminary... So like, bet, then. You're betting that... I mean, you, 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 well, don't, you don't seek that preliminary injunction. If you have to put up the bond, unless you're, you're certain these people have... They've copied your patent. Yeah, you know what I got me thinking because of, you just lose as you're saying this, as you're saying this, here's what you got me thinking of. In football, in, the, in American football, in the NFL, yeah. if you challenge a, a call by the ref, right, yeah. if you lose, you lose a timeout. Right. You might need that timeout later. Right. I don't know why that popped in. So that's kind of, it, was a, it seems like an appropriate metaphor. Could be. Yeah. But anyway, so, so now you have, you have the district court action, right? But there's another way you could go instead, because then you have to go to trial. Let's say you get the preliminary injunction motion. A lot of times, the defendants will just stop at that point because, you know, they're, they're dead in the water. Right. Or maybe they'll settle. Or maybe they'll take a license. You know, maybe they'll say, oh, look, I'll take a license and you're going to pay me $10,000 per boat engine that you sell, which essentially makes us the equivalent price, sort of. Sure. You know, some way that you can balance it out so that you're not getting killed in the marketplace. Maybe you don't want that. I mean, in all likelihood, in that scenario, in this particular scenario, you just want to get them out because you want to be able to sell your boat engines in the right. marketplace. But there's another way you can go, and that is something called uh, an International Trade Commission action, an ITC proceeding. Hmm, okay. And basically what that is, is you don't even actually handle the case. You don't prosecute the case as a patent owner. You go to the ITC and you pitch them on your idea. You say, look, there's an infringer. Here's the situation. We want you to take this action. We want you to go after the infringer, right? And if they accept it, they will become the prosecutor in the action, hmm. if you will. They will prosecute your action. And I don't mean to give the sound of a criminal prosecution because it's not. It's civil. But they will, they will go after this case on your behalf. They'll investigate it. And ultimately, if they... Now, there's still discovery. There's still all... And it's still very expensive. I mean, imagine that a district court action for patent infringement, which can yield a permanent injunction, will cost the plaintiff, I don't know, two to four million U.S. dollars in the U.S. Wow. An ITC proceeding will probably cost around two million dollars. Wow. It's very expensive. Wait, why does, but if the, if the ITC is doing it. Well, you're still doing all the work because keep in mind, what is most of the expense around litigation is discovery, right? You got to, and motions and, and memos right. and all the lawyer stuff. So it still costs the plaintiff, the patent owner, a lot of money. And it's all, but it's compressed. So there's certain advantages to an ITC proceeding. One is it's compressed. So if you can't get a preliminary injunction, right? You can't get that. Yeah. 
Well, you want to go for That's see the next you, step, basically. Well, a lot of people do, I, well, not a lot, but some people do ITC directly without even going to a district court action. Although you could do both. You could do both at the same time, right? But it's compressed so that you can get an act, you can get a, a result in like a year to 18 months. In fact, it's in, a lot faster. It's a lot faster, right? So in the U.S. in 2019, something like, I don't know, 70 ITC proceedings were concluded in the U.S. for patent cases, okay? The shortest duration one was nine months. The longest duration one was 29 months. Okay. So even the longest duration one still less than three was years. still less than three years. It's two and a half years. And the shortest duration one was nine months. I mean, that's... So they have like 30 days. They have 30 days, I believe it is, to decide if they're going to take your case. So you file your complaint and you have to, you know, you have to demonstrate a couple of other things. Like you have to, you still have to show that you have a likelihood of success on the merits, but you also have to show that there's something called a domestic industry. And that essentially, I think what the U.S. is trying to do is say, we want to make sure that we're protecting something here too. This that the U.S. has, you know, skin in this as a nation, that we're going to take this on, right? So you have to demonstrate that, there's an investment of plants and equipment, you know, capital and labor or um, R&D and engineering. You have to show that there's this domestic industry. So there's a little bit more that you have to show up front with respect to an ITC proceeding. But the advantages are it goes faster. I mentioned a preliminary injunction in district court. There's something called an exclusion order in the ITC, which I don't, I don't want to give you all the details, but it's a little stronger. Okay. Yeah. And so that's an exclusion order that you can get. So it's faster. It's a little bit more money up front because imagine it's like two to four million U.S. dollars for a district court action spread over th you know, three or four years. This is like an average of two million in 18 months. Right. So it's a lot of money up front, but you get, you know, you get a faster result. And there's one other problem with an ITC proceeding, and that is I'm sure there's a lot of other differentiation. Sure, but sure. one is you can't get a monetary award. You're really trying to block them from coming in. So what they'll then do, they have broader capabilities. They can like, they can tag the business, XY or ABC company in China. We're going to be flagging everything they do. Mm. Product brands, they're big on trademarks that are coming in. There's, and, uh, and also infringing patents. So, so anyway, those are the basic things that you do if you're infringed. But it sounds like the ITC is almost designed more to protect industries and not just individual companies. Is that accurate? I, I don't know if that's accurate, but it sounds good. It really does. It sounds good. I okay. mean, I don't know if it's accurate. And if there's anybody out there that knows more than I do, and I'm certain there is, because yeah. we have Please comment. millions yeah. and millions of viewers out there. Yeah. Right? Well, I mean, you know, those who have watched have given some really interesting feedback. So if you do know something about this, we'd yeah, love to that'd be good. you, you know, and right. yes. we want to have guests on the show eventually. And too, we'll so. talk about it next time if there's any good comments. Yeah, right? absolutely. Okay, so, so, so there's, there's the district court action, there's ITC, both very expensive, and just kind of like as a concluding matter in this, or concluding point, yeah. it goes to show that you need to think carefully about patenting. And, and there's companies out there all over, all like over that have, is there. Yeah, yeah. They, have, they have invention review committees, and they have to decide what to do with an invention. What do you do? Because the answer isn't always patenting. There's trade secrets. There's something called defensive publications, mm -hmm. you know, there's doing nothing, you know, because you might say it's just not worth the money. The feature isn't worth fighting over. It's kind of cool, but we'd never really go to litigation over this. Right. And we're never going to get anything. So we're just going to do nothing. Right. So when you have to decide, am I going to get a patent? It's not just, am I going to get a patent or not? Because first you have to decide, 
am I willing to spend the money that it takes to get a patent, right. file in all the right countries in the world, and that's probably a whole different video is how to you know, think through the issue of whether to get a patent. Right. And then if you decide that patenting isn't the right approach, because maybe the duration isn't enough, you know, you need more than 20 years from the date of filing of protection. You know, trade right. secrets can be protected forever, right. you know, in theory. Um, or it's um, you can't afford to spend all the money in all the right countries, and it's just not useful to get it in one country, right? Sure. You know, or you'd never you'd never fight over it. You'd never try to enforce it. You like think about trade secrets. Right. You know, a trade secret could be a great solution because a trade secret is a secret, and as long as it can't be reverse engineered in the marketplace, and as long as you have a secret keeping infrastructure in place where you have all the right agreements and all the right culture, it could be kept secret forever. And then you don't have to get into the expense of all this patent litigation ugliness. So, so here's a question. So it seems to me like in, in this story of the, the Chinese infringing company and the boat engine, um, why, if, if you could potentially build this boat engine, right, uh, by copying it, right? I'm, I'm looking at it from the perspective of the Chinese company. Um, but there's all these consequences, right? Because in, in reality, though they're, they're to the $10 million ahead by not having to do all the R&D in order to design it in the first place, it's not going to cost them nothing to manufacture this copied product right. and oh, yeah. sell it. Right. They do have to make some investment, yeah. right? Yeah. So there is some risk for them. Oh, Certainly there's a, the reward is a lot bigger because they're just, they don't have to do the R&D. But so it just seems to me that if you have, if you have um, the infrastructure or the corporate infrastructure to copy someone else's idea, why not just go to that company and get a license? Because, you know, if they're going to make a, a similar, if not very close product um, and profit from it, I mean, why not do it? Legally. Okay, so there's a few, few answers to that question. Number one, they probably wouldn't give you a license, right? Because they don't want you as a competitor in the marketplace. I mean, unless there's like obscene license terms that you wouldn't be able to thrive. Your advantage is that you can sell it you know, better, faster, cheaper, right? right. And in this case, cheaper. It's not better because it's the same. So, um, but another thing is you might not know. You know, there's a thing called a freedom to operate search that people conduct, which is essentially I'm about to go to market with my product. Before I even start development, savvy companies will start doing freedom to operate searching, essentially searching patents all over the world where you want to start making, using and selling or selling. Make sure there's no patents that you're going to step into. Right. So many companies don't do that. And if you're not savvy enough to do that, you would never even know you were infringing the patent until you got into so the marketplace. Possible that they came up with the exact same. No, I think it's possible. I know in this case there was copying because in this case they actually copied mistakes. Huh. So there were engineering flaws in our product that they oh, copied. Yeah. So then in that case it's like. But, but just because they copied, it doesn't mean they know there was a patent, right? Because you might not know there's a patent because here's the fact of life. If there's no patents, you can copy anything. Right. right, You go out to the store, you find a product, this is really cool, I'm going to copy it exactly, and then I'm going to go to the marketplace under the different brand. Hey, if there's no trademarks, I can even copy the trademark brand, right? Right. So the point, though, I mean, if the world doesn't contain such a thing as trademark laws, right? Enter IP, 
enter patent laws, enter trademark laws, enter copyright laws. As soon as you bring those into the equation, now you can't copy anything. But if you don't know that there is a patent, you don't know that you're doing anything wrong. Now, I'm not saying they didn't know there was a patent. Right. They might have been willfully infringing. But you asked the question of why would they do it. And I'm saying, number one, they might not believe they could get a license. But more likely, they might not have even known there was a patent, right? And the other thing is, there's another thing. So let's say they knew they couldn't get a license. They knew there was a patent. They might not think that their opponent in the marketplace has either the financial wherewithal or the fortitude to bring an action. Because many people don't. Some people say, yeah, you have a patent, I'm going to infringe you, and there's nothing you're going to do about it. How do I know that? Because other people have infringed other stuff of yours, and you just shrink into the background because you're afraid. Because you don't want to spend the money, because you know how much it costs. And maybe I have a really big war chest, right? And right. that's one way that big guys can smush little guys, because they have a lot of money. Right. And you say, okay, go ahead and sue me. There's really nothing you can well, do about it. Well, unless, unless you do have the finances behind you to sue. Or if you can get a law firm to do it on a contingency, hmm. right? So if you're being infringed, if your patent is being infringed, yeah. you, there's patent law firms out there that will say, look, if you're willing to go through to the end and get a verdict on this or a settlement on this and not just do a deal because you want to keep them out of your marketplace, but you actually are going to get money out of this, we will agree to take your case on a contingency, which means we will front all the upfront legal costs could be $2 million, right? right? And then we get a third of your of the settlement or the verdict, which could be $100 million. Mm. Then it's a good investment. But in many cases, and when you're thinking about infringing, if you're going to be an infringer or a reckless infringer, you're probably going out and researching the company that owns that patent pretty carefully to figure out whether they've ever been in litigation before. You know, right. how big are they? Do they have the money to do anything about this? It's crazy. It's like you're almost taking, you're, you're analyzing the risk of infringing a patent from a business standpoint because you're because i mean you're then then at you're that right, point right, you're, right. you're looking at it like all right well i'm going to copy this idea this is what it's going to cost me and this is what i'm going to make copying that idea and worst case scenario if i get caught and i get sued this is what this if this is what i'm going to make and then this is what the settlement is i still made this much money yeah you know what it reminds me so i'm watching last night i'm watching netflix okay and I'm watching this TV show, which is really awesome, by the way. It's called The Witcher. Okay? The Witcher. Okay, I haven't watched this one. That's really cool. But anyway, there's it's kind of like a Middle Ages kind of thing. And there's this one kingdom attacking another kingdom, right? They've got to be thinking about those same kinds of things. We want their kingdom. Well, we're going to attack it. Now, how strong are they? Are they going to defend? Are they just going to run into the woods? Or are they going to have a strong defense against us? If we do have to go up against their defenses, what will our losses be? And what will that be relative to their losses? And in the end, is it worth it? Let's say that they're a strong kingdom, and I want that kingdom, and I'm going to lose 10,000 of my troops, right? but they're going to lose all their troops, and I'm going to end up getting the kingdom. Maybe it's worth it, right? So now you look at it in terms of patent litigation. you got to be thinking the same things. It's all about the numbers, ultimately. Right. You know, what, but and the numbers come down to what your opposition is going to be like. You know, are they going to oppose? Maybe you win the case. You know, maybe it's questionable as to whether it's infringement. Maybe we will lose the case at the end, but we'll win the preliminary injunction motion. Right. Which means we'll be able to keep infringing for three to four years. And then who knows? They might give up. You know, they might run out of money. 
there's a lot of considerations that go into the question of whether to infringe a product, right? Yeah. But I think the biggest one is people don't even know they're infringing until they get a summons complaint from the other side right. that indicates that they're infringing. I mean, that's you highlighted why why our business is so important in the marketplace for companies is the IP education and understanding the value and the importance of IP because, believe it or not, a lot of co- companies don't. Yeah, and think about this. What does too. it sound like? What is the discussion we're having sound like? Does it sound like a legal discussion or does it sound like a, a business, business discussion? Exactly. Yeah. That's the this is point. what we were talking about last exactly. week. Exactly. Is, that, is that IP is not a legal thing, it's a business thing. Right. It, it's, a, it's a business thing. So, yeah, there's legal components to it. Am I infringing? How do I get around infringement? You know, there are legal components, but ultimately it's all business questions. You know, so. So ultimately, here's the problem with not being IP savvy across your enterprise. I'll give our company, our training company a pitch and my law firm a pitch, right? Why do you need to have IP savvy? Because you don't have enough patent lawyers in your company to stand over the shoulders of every single person making every single business decision. Yeah. Because, I mean, and patent lawyers don't always know what the business implications are, right? So you need business leaders to understand the IP implications of their decisions at least enough to know when to pick up the phone and call their patent or trademark counsel to get good advice. Right. And that's why, you know, when people think of IP as a legal thing, they lose right off the bat. Right. When they think of it as an engineering thing, is are patents all about engineering? Yeah. No. 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 Business. Yeah. That's the thing. There, it's like a triangle, right? There's legal. There's Innovation, research and development, engineering, and what's on top? Business. If you don't have a business, you don't have patents. You don't have engineering. You don't have lawyers. You have nobody if the business isn't going to make money from it. So whenever you're thinking about anything with respect to IP, never forget it's all about advancing your business goals. If it doesn't advance your business goals, don't do it. This is like, I think, at the heart of what this podcast is trying to get across, right? This is like the meat of it, right? It's the, it's the, um, it's the essence of why you should know all this stuff about IP. About IP, if you want to be in business. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Awesome. All right. So now we got to talk about, um, R and Bieber. Right. R and Bieber. We only have a couple minutes. So let's wrap that part up. So Justin Bieber, um, this is our, our weekly news bite. So Justin Bieber recently, Filed a application for I think a trademark application. federal for, trademark rec, for um, R and Bieber for the phrase R and Bieber, and that's like a play on R Empress and capital B Bieber, right? Bieber, yeah, yeah. R and Bieber, and uh, I sent you this article, and he was it's about some of the the, the business decisions that he was clearly um, laying the groundwork for. For this around yeah, this trademark. So the question is, can he get R and Bieber as a trademark? Yeah, yeah. I thought this would be a good way to talk just a little bit about what what is a trademark and what can, you can get a trademark uh, on, and 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 how you would classify this under the different right. so, trademarks. Yeah. So when you sent me that article, I quickly skimmed it, and I was just thinking to this myself, is becoming a, re- yeah, a, a recurring know, thing. I know. Like, I always I have quickly no, no. It my 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 intention is to read it. Thoroughly, like the day before. Yeah, it wasn't really. It wasn't a. It was no, a thin article. I know, but still, I always want to read it in advance, and I never get to because we're so busy, right? But I did quickly skim it, and I was thinking, if somebody came to me and said, "Can I get R and Bieber as a trademark?" What would I ask them? 
right? What are the questions that should come to mind? Yeah. Well, so first you want to find out if you're, um, if you're, if it's attached to a product or service. Sure. Because trademarks only exist to be attached to products and services, right? Right. I mean, trademarks and products and services are tighter than peanut butter and jelly, right? Because okay. you could have a peanut butter sandwich or a jelly sandwich. Yeah. Whoever would want that, I don't know. But yeah, peanut butter and jelly together are better, but I you can have not, them separately. Now I'm thinking peanut beaver and jelly. That could be good too. <laughs> but anyway, anyway, the point is you cannot have a trademark without a product or service that it's attached to. So unlike peanut butter and jelly, which can be eaten apart, you cannot have a trademark without a product or service that it's attached to. They live because of products and services, right? Okay. So the first question I'd say is, what's your product and service? What's your product and service? Yeah, well, it sounds like he's So let's gonna, say it's merchandise. Right. And right? It, well, it sounds like he's going he's gonna to do an album called... But that I could be a title of an album, but it's got to have a product or service. But is, we, it, is, if, is that a trademark? Is the, is the album, would that be considered the product? It's kind of like, a, well, maybe. Maybe that's the approach is that they're going to have a, a group of musical. I don't know. That's a good question. And I would probably want to get one of my high-powered trademark attorneys at the Colson Law Group to talk about that. Yeah. But, and I'm not that guy. Yeah. However, I know this much about trademarks. So what I'd say is, what is your product service? So if you're saying, saying to me, my product is my album, I'd have to think about, is it an album title? which isn't a trademark, or is the product the album? I don't know. I have to think about that. Interesting. But, but you've you got to have a product or service, it right? Could, it could be merchandise. Merchandise. Let's say he wants it on merchandise. R and Bieber merchandise. Shirts. Okay? Mm -hmm. So now we have a product, right? Could it be several products? Hey, you can have a trademark on multiple products. Yes. You have to get a different trademark for each of those products. But yes, Interesting. you could have, like, you know, the Ford company has a whole bunch of products with the Ford name. But as trademarks. But anyway, the second question I'd ask is, is it, does it have inherent um, distinctiveness, right? And there's basically four categories of distinctiveness. One is called the strongest category. And by, basically that means, is it the kind of thing that people would automatically associate with a product or service and the source of that product or service? Yeah. Or would it be confusing because it's more descriptive of just any old product or service, right? Right. So the four categories are essentially fanciful. That's not even really a word. The two uh, that come to mind for me are like uh, Kodak, which is like K-O-D-A-K, just a made-up word, hmm. right? Those are the strongest trademarks because they're very distinctive, right? I mean, right. they're not used for anything else. They're made up, yeah. right? The second strongest category of distinctiveness is called arbitrary. Like Apple for computers, you know? Apples have nothing to do with computers. Computers, right, exactly. So that's really strong, right? The next is something called suggestive, right? Hmm. And now we're starting to get close to the line where it's not distinctive at all. Suggestive is distinctive. It's just not as strong. And a suggestive mark might be like the Roach Motel, right? You could, it might take you a few guesses. That might be descriptive, but it, it, might, be, it might take you a few guesses to figure out what it is. Maybe not, because everybody probably knows the Roach Motel is like a trap for roaches to kill them. Right. So that's probably descriptive. But things that take a little bit of creativity, a couple of guesses maybe before you get it. Sure. You wouldn't get it right away. Right. Like if I said that I have a gutter cleaning service is the name of my trademark. Gutter cleaners. Do you have to guess what that is? No. Right. It's gutter cleaners, <laughs> right? That would be descriptive. That's the fourth layer of, of distinctiveness. And that's not right. distinctive, Right. right. Actually, technically, there's a fifth layer, which is generic. 
But so it's fanciful, but arbitrary. You can't trademark it if it's generic. No, right. But you might have been trademarked at one time. But here's what I mean. Arbitrary, or I mean fanciful, arbitrary, suggestive. Now we're getting close to the line, right? Descriptive. You really can't get distinctiveness, so you can't get a trademark on a descriptive mark unless after a whole bunch of years in the marketplace, everybody starts to recognize you as that descriptive mark, then you can get it. It's, it goes on something called the secondary register. So you can ultimately earn trademark significance, right? Okay. But it's not, it's not normal, natural to get it there. Then there's generic, which is like, you know, things that used to be really strong trademarks, but have been so powerful that oh. they've turned into generic marks, which companies are going to have a hard time with. Like Xerox had a hard time with their mark because yeah. people would use it as a verb and say, yeah. can you Xerox me this? Right. You know, Or I want to go Google something. Right. You know, or I want to go rollerblading. Rollerblading is actually a trademark. It's inline skating, not rollerblading, right? right. They become, and by the way, rollerblading is still a perfectly good mark. Remember that funny video that we saw for Velcro? Yeah, Velcro. Velcro. Don't say Velcro. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Don't say, it's, it's, it's hook, hook and loop. loop. Exactly, it's yeah. hook and loop. We learned that because we watched this really funny video yeah. made by Velcro to or say, grippy grass. stop, yeah, that right, grippy grass, yeah. yeah. Stop saying Velcro, Velcro yeah. as a noun or a verb, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, so now we're to R&D, go back to him because we're running so, yeah. out of time. So, so is it, first of all, is it on a product or service? Let's say it's merchandise. Because I don't know, as I sit here again, I'm not the trademark guru. I know just enough to be dangerous. Yeah. But is an album cover called Aaron Bieber, is an album, I'm sorry, well, is the album title. It sounds descriptive to me. Oh, Aaron Bieber? It's right, an R&B because, music yeah, about Bieber. Yeah, it's R&B music. I like and, it. And he's Justin Bieber, so. It could be descriptive, right? right? Could be. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a little bit of a play. But, but if anybody said, hey, I've got R and so let's say that he's, let's say it's his brand of music. He's come up with his own brand of music, and that's what his product or service now is. Now, that right? would be a really hard claim. Right, but and I just, I've is never, there really anything new under the. Okay, let me just say first, I've never listened to a Justin Bieber song in my life. Oh, so you've not lived. I've not lived, I'm sure yeah. I haven't. But anyway, neither do my kids, though. So maybe their I generation. Actually, actually barely have My kids to are it. 19 and 20. Maybe yeah. the Bieber came along. At, before my kids and after me. But sure. Whenever, and that's I'll a, send you that's I'll a, send big, a couple of my favorites. Okay, you got it. But anyway, so I like the way you're already thinking like a lawyer. Let's say it is a product or service it's attached to. Is it descriptive? And you said R and Bieber is descriptive. Maybe it's suggestive, right? But if it's for his music brand or... Again, I'm out of my element by talking about trademarking of an album title. Sure. But let's say it's about like his product is somehow this brand of music and it's called r and Bieber. it's pretty obvious that it's in the r and B area and it's by Bieber, right that's what so i think maybe it's descriptive yeah right so now there is also something about trademark law where you can always use your own name but i'm not sure you can get protection on your name hmm. so you can use it even if someone else has protection but it doesn't mean you can get protection right so r and Bieber. I like the way you've been thinking about it. If we assume that it is attached to a product and service, is it fanciful, arbitrary, suggestive, maybe, descriptive, maybe, certainly not generic yet, right? right? So, yeah, I like the way you're thinking about it. Yeah. And I don't know the answer. It's interesting. So, inconclusive on R and Bieber, but we'll have to follow this one and see what happens. Absolutely. All right. All right. See you next week. You got it. See you next week. Mm-hmm.